0: Three.
1: Three.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Snap Note Tap podcast. I am Joe Cardinal, and today we are joined by a special guest we've been trying to get on for a couple of weeks now, all the way from the great state of Hawaii, Jason Godwise. Hello, Jason. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Welcome, too. How? Thank you.
0: Uh, now, I got to let everybody out there in uh, Radio Land know that uh, Tony is not able to join, um, which is kind of a last minute uh, emergency, came up at home. There's some issue. Everybody, I think, out there knows that his mother is you know uh, going through some health issues and something came up so if you're out there definitely uh, please add your thoughts and prayers towards Tony and his mom Uh, so we're going to be missing him on this podcast but we're going to forge ahead because we've been waiting forever to get uh, Jason on here and hear his stories and he'll regale us of his training days and all the things uh, of his life Uh, but before we get started uh, of course we have to do our plugs so, uh, of course, if you're looking to help or support Tony and support Catch Wrestling, uh, the number one thing you can do is join his Tri-C program. And really, it's, uh, it's the best for Tony and it's the best for, I think, the students because you get, honestly, a ridiculous amount of access to Tony and, uh, and his videos. So you get all his videos just to start with on day one. Uh, you can basically come out and train at his house. You know, he's got a gym in his basement. You can train and he puts you up at his house. Uh, which is awesome because you have access to him. So even after you're done training, you kind of hang out with Tony, uh, which we talked about is just like a, you know, an unparalleled opportunity for those who are really interested in in the history of catching all his stories of growing up on the rough streets of Cleveland. Um, Beyond that, you have ongoing video lessons with him. So he does customized video lessons. He's doing that with his current Tri-C Storms where he films answers to their specific questions. So it's customized training to your needs. Uh, I don't think anybody else for that price offers what Tony's offering. So obviously uh, it's the best for you and it's the best for Tony. If you can do that, obviously it's not something everybody can afford. So if you, you still want to just pitch in, please consider our monthly membership. Uh, There's two levels. One is just, you know, uh, basically kind of a $5 a month donation deal. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, supporting your PBS station or whatever. You're just pitching in like for the cost of a Starbucks coffee saying, Hey, I, I enjoy the podcast. I watch videos on YouTube. Uh, I'm learning from Tony and I want to support him and his teaching. So that's a great way to say a thank you to Tony and and keep him going. Uh, There's a second level, which is only $10 a month. And that uh, there's regular videos that he films for that, that are new. So we're producing new little short video clips and instructionals uh, that he puts up there pretty much every month. So you have access to that. Both are great options. Either is greatly appreciated. So uh, let's get on with the show. Uh, that's enough for the plugs. Uh, this is the first time I'm actually meeting Jason. We just talked for a few minutes before the podcast, but I'm really excited to uh, meet you and hear your story, Jason. Welcome.
2: No, thank you. I said it was kind of interesting. Get here; it's quite early in Hawaii time. So,
0: yeah, appreciate you getting up for that. So, uh, although I don't, I don't feel bad for you since you're living in Hawaii. That's got to be awesome.
2: You know, it's um, it's better than most people realize, and not for necessarily the same reasons. The little things, and I, I'm a Midwest guy. I used to, I'd cut through, you know, I'm here, I'll try to hold my phone on there, but I'd cut through this much ice to go ice fishing. I would, I went out, in the, you know, when it was snowing, I could see the animal tracks and go out hunting. I love the cold weather in the Midwest, and when the corn was picked out of the fields, and you're walking through, and the crusty ice was happening, and um, you know, those type of things. But, you're in Hawaii now, and not only are the winters better, but the summers are better. It's, it's almost never really, it, on a miserable hot day in the Midwest, it's you know, dang near 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and the air's not moving. And a bad day in Hawaii, it's 85, and the humidity's rather low, and there's a breeze off the ocean. That's the miserable summer. And Then the miserable freezing winter is maybe 70. Might get when it gets down to 68, 69 degrees, the kids are wearing long sleeve hoodies. And, <laughs> and and so it's funny the, the people in Hawaii have a, a temperature range of comfort of about five degrees. At, <laughs> at 73, it's getting chilly, and at about 77, they want the air on. They it's 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 a real um it's a real example of how people Adapt to different environments. Whereas in the Midwest, I remember being in college in the Midwest, and I was wearing flip flops in the snow because my feet weren't on the ground. Just like I wouldn't necessarily wear gloves and things. And she's, I was at a skating rink here in Hawaii, and they, you know, they had the inside of a cold. And I was like, oh gosh, it's so freezing cold in here. And I would never have done that, but I've been here for so many years now that I've my blood your blood thins out quick. And the other thing that's nice is. Because it's always nice, you can have the windows open and a fresh breeze. So, the, yeah, it's amazing. The air is fresh. You can always walk around barefoot in a T-shirt. It's always motorcycle weather. It's always jumping the water weather. It is – It is. they don't call it paradise for nothing. I, I tell people if aliens captured humans and put them in a zoo, they would put them in a climate like Hawaii.
0: It makes sense. That's a zoo I'd
2: want to be in. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh. It's, uh, how long have you been in Hawaii? Um, Let's see now. Uh, it's about 10, 10, 11, 12 years. So, as time goes on. So, yeah, it's over 10 years.
0: You know, I was thinking about what you said about like how you adjust the temperature. What's what sucks about it, too, is that like it takes you, at least mine, my, my experience is it takes you a while to get used to the cold. So, like, um, and then like in the middle, some days we'll have weird random, like in Chicago, we'll have a random day in January where it hits 60. And you, it's like, almost like you lose your adaptation to the cold for a few days. It's like, all of a sudden my body's ready for spring and it's like, you know, uh, and it's amazing. Yeah. And, and, but normally like after the first few weeks where it's like 20 degrees or lower, the minute it gets up to 30 or 40, you're like, Oh, this is beautiful. I can't believe it's 30 degrees out. And you're just walking around, like you said, in the hoodie or whatever. And <laughs> like, it's, yeah. but, but the first time it hits 40 in the fall, it's like the world is ended. You're like, oh my God, what the hell? How did I survive this? And, and that's when like, I start making plans. Like, how can I move to Hawaii? How can I move <laughs> somewhere South? Why do I do this to myself every year? It's like, you forget the lessons because spring is so nice. And But you're right too. We also get it coming and going because summer now, at least lately, um, the last decade or so, July and August can be miserable. It used to be that we'd get like two weeks of real hot weather, you know, or maybe August would be bad. But now- Uh, we were getting like degrees, 90 degrees in September here. Just, you know, like that kind of August weather has been creeping further and further. And yeah, it's, it's, it can be rough on both ends of it.
2: Well, and that's the thing. Hawaii is not only better in the winter, it's better in the summer because we don't have those oppressive summer heats. And as you just said, I I agree with you that um, there's times in the summer, like July and August, it's just people hide indoors in air conditioning. And it's, and that's, almost as bad as hiding indoors in the winter to get warmer. So if you have bad climate on both ends for it's too cold or too hot, and that's why it's kind of really nice. I'm an outdoor person. I love to be outdoors. I even, and just to be able to go out and walk around barefoot 365 days a year is, is better than I thought it would be.
0: That's awesome. Well, I'm completely jealous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to need to come out and stay with you. Uh, do you have a tri seed program for yourself? Because maybe I'll join up. Um
2: Hey, uh, look here. Here's my mat, <laughs> in my garage, my weight bench, my maces, my kettlebells. Wow. I got my, I, this is my throwing pad for uh, Greco. So yeah, I've got the my wife's punching and kicking pads, and <laughs> my weights, oh. and my oh, traps. That's a All nice setup. So, so come. Yeah. In fact, this mat is triple triple matted. This wrestling mat is a mat and then a mat underneath it and then, um, pads under that. So wow. you can throw them, land on it pretty hard. I, of course, as you get older, you want your knees and joints still soft. Ooh, and, tell me about and flexible. It.
0: Um, so how did you get started training? Let's, let's go through the story. What's your origin story?
2: Oh boy. Um, you know, I was, um, for me, I guess I just kind of grew, I grew up, um, in this, in, um, I just have always been attracted to it you know there was never a place to train. I went to a very uh, kind of imp- my mom a uh, single mom she uh, my, my dad my mom and dad got divorced and didn't I kind of went to a really bad inner city school in the south side of Indianapolis there just was nothing there there was not a wrestling team there wasn't a football team there wasn't i mean it had nothing it was uh it's since been condemned it um i would i would i don't know. I would guess of my eighth grade graduating class because I went to one of the grade schools, There, I don't know that a single person went to college and I bet half of them dropped out and didn't didn't even make it to a high school.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then my high school probably brought in nearly a thousand freshmen and probably graduated about 300 seniors where 700 just got dropped out, you know, it was bad. And that school has since been, is gone now it's kind of taken over so there wasn't a real great um program but i i just love to it was really drawn to to I, I don't know manly activities and things and i, I read and I, I read a lot um, and i and i was just really i tried to get that so I, as soon as i could get to the uh, a chance I joined the wrestling team. I tried to learn, you know, I I was in the days of the old karate movies like Bruce Lee and that type of stuff. So I always wanted to learn to fight and I I admired the boxers and things like that. And there was the PAL club, but that was really too far to me for me to get to it. I would try to go there and learn to box, but it was a a struggle if I could try to catch a ride with somebody. So I, I really, and my first, the wrestling team Of my high school was just horrible. The wrestling coach had never wrestled. He'd never been on a mat in his life. He was just kind of a nice guy that coached wrestling so that somebody would. And I I remember there, my freshman year, they had, the team won three matches, probably lost 20. It was like three and 20. And the guy didn't know how to wrestle, but he was a good dude. He just, he just was trying. He would actually read books. He said, I learned how to wrestle just, and then he would kind of, we learned, this drop step double that was horrible. And this sit out that just would get you killed and get slaughtered by all the other teams. But I, I uh, actually. Um, I said, okay, I'm going to learn to wrestle. And I figured out that if I would just keep moving for six minutes, I would wear out the other guy and I'd eventually win. I was just one of the things. So I said, okay, I won't get pinned. I never got pinned and I would just keep struggling. And I, I won a lot of matches, a lot of them. And there was kind of a freaky thing. And at, at, at that school and I struggle and I actually read books and tried. And so I didn't really learn to wrestle. I was, I went to nationals and was on the alternate on the world team and uh, as a high school kid, but I really didn't know how to wrestle at all. And I tried to learn to box, but same thing. I tried to I, I do it. And I, um, it was just kind of a struggle, but I, there was something inside me that just burned in the desire to do that. I, I didn't really have, um, I've never had a coach in my life. I've never had anybody teach me really. That's one thing I kind of admired Tony. Cause by the time I met Tony, I had learned a lot. I'd, I'd, I'd gone and I trained with Hickson Gracie. I went and met him at a seminar and he was tapping everybody out and we tied into each other and he went 10 minutes and couldn't tap me. And it was on, it's on wow. film. Yeah. It was, that was early in the raw days. He said, and he said, wow, I will, I will help you in any way you want. I'll help you. You need to fight. And, um, this was, of course, later on, but I, after I'd been to college, because I didn't learn to wrestle probably till I got to college, because there was a guy, James Tannehill, super good wrestling coach, you know, skilled guy that taught me a lot of moves, and then I learned and learned, and I tried to learn from everybody. I, I guess I have a huge thirst for learning. I grew up in, um, I said, well, I grew up really some ghetto trash, the cheapest apartments on the south side of Indianapolis that they had, and in those days, they had the traveling encyclopedias. There was no internet. And everybody that had a kid would, if they wanted this, they would get by their kid a seven encyclopedias. The traveling salesman would sell encyclopedias. And that was a kind of a big deal in the 70s. And I would go through and people would always get kicked out of the apartment, move out, and they would throw these encyclopedias away. So I collected encyclopedias out of the dumpster. Mm. And I had full sets or nearly full sets of probably every encyclopedia. I I had my room full. I had uh, cinder blocks and I put boards across them and made bookshelves and I would go through Encyclopedia Britannica, Encyclopedia Americana, a world book. I remember all those encyclopedias and I just read them cover to cover um, on everything, just trying to study and learn. I I really had, a. would go to the library and I would actually have a laundry basket and you could get as many books as you want. So I, I kind of, did that and so it wasn't just fighting fighting was a a small piece of my life but i just was always trying to self-actualize and and become more i really wanted to grow and become more of a human being and and fighting i appreciated that more than other other things combat sports even before there was mma you know i like i said boxing and wrestling because i i was i said you know what this this takes the strength of a power lifter and the endurance of a marathon runner and the strategy of a chess master. And you have to remain calm. And, you know, I heard somebody say once, like golf is the most mental game in the world. You, you have to putt. And, and, you know, it's so much pressure on you. And I said, that's crazy. I said, no, one's going to rip your arm out of the sock and punch your teeth down your throat while you're, you want even the crowd quiet, while you're putting, have people screaming at you while you're trying to figure out which move. And then he did it. You know, I said, I I really appreciated that the combat sports take the most. They really measure who you are and they're the best way to grow and apply. So that's what attracted me. So I wanted to learn. I wanted to, I wanted to box like Gene Tunney. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to wrestle like Gama from India or, or Hackenschmidt. I wanted to be able to uh, do all of those things. And and so they would, uh, you know, I wanted to throw a left hook like Jack Dempsey. I wanted to have a, a punch like Ernie Shavers. I wanted to, uh, you know, have footwork like Muhammad Ali. I wanted to, I wanted to be, I want, and I, and I also wanted, I wanted to, you know, think like Einstein. I wanted to be able to, I wanted to go out in the woods like Daniel Boone. I wanted all these things And I think the best crucible to really develop that was the combat sports. So that's kind of um, what drove me. And a lot of people that know me, I have a guy that took over the coaching from the high school after I graduated. He said, well, I wish I, if I'd had you, you know, we would have done this because I was I wanted to win Olympic gold medal. I, I wanted to be I wanted to you know, I, I went down when I was in I think I was a junior in uh, Bruce Baumgartner was at Indiana State. And I got down there and watched him in the regionals and I stood next to him and I measured myself up against him. And I was like, you know, I, I think I could take him. You know, that's kind of crazy. And um, Tom Zipancic was the strength coach for the Indianapolis Colts. And he had a gym before that. He was a, he was on the world. Um, he was an alternate for the world uh, for uh, the Olympic at uh, 1980 Olympic team. And I went to his gym and I, I challenged him to a match. And I was like 16, I was maybe 15. And I th- and, you know, I think, so it's, I want, I always wanted to learn those things. I, I went out to uh, Hicks on Gracie school in California and I slept behind a dumpster in an alley. I put, there was a couch that somebody had and I shoved it behind there and I stayed in his classes. And then I, I met a guy, he loaned me, he let me use his apartment and, kind of took mercy on me. But I want I took his classes from 6 a.m. to 10 PM with every black belt, trying to learn everything. This was early in the 90s, so I had a lot of knowledge before um other people early on. And then, you know, when Mark Coleman, when he won the, you know, he was heavyweight champion of the world, he was I was lucky, he was only about three hours from me. And I went out and trained with him. And Mark Coleman's the greatest guy in the world. I mean he's he's like, yeah, stay in my apartment, train. And he's he was champion of the world. I mean, he just was like, hey, I'll help you out. Sure. We went to, Hammer, you know, Ohio State Wrestling Room, which is the Hammer House, and trained there with people. And uh, Dan Severin was at Coldwater, Michigan. He was only about three hours from Indianapolis. I drove up and stayed at him and trained. And he was, you know, and so I, I just really desired to learn from everybody. And I, I stayed humble and I stayed in good terms with everybody. And that's one reason I really, I, I ran across Tony. And I said later on, you know, I, I would do that to everybody. I'd go to Japan. I'd say, hey, what's your best move? I'd say that to anybody. You know, what, what's your best move? What do you like best? And I try to catalog those. And I put those, all those moves in a computer. I have a laptop and I have in the guard, everything you can do in the guard, have the guard, everything you can do when you have the guard, in cross mount, everything you can do, have cross mount, everything you can do. And Tony's one of the few guys I've run across that's sort of that same mindset because he'll pick your brain. Uh Josh Barnett's like that also. Josh Barnett, um, he's a real student that people don't understand. Um funny guy also is like that is Tom Erickson. He was only an hour from me and he's at Purdue. And that guy's, you know, he, he should have been multiple time UFC heavyweight champion, but nobody ever was afraid of him. He was just such a monster. Yeah, but he's also very smart, super, that's why he's a very successful coach now. He's You look at him and you're like, wow, this guy's so big, so strong, but he never relied on his physical domination. He was a mental thinking guy. Josh Burnett's like that. And Tony, Tony's like that. He's always looking at, hey, how does this work? And a real student of the game um, in those ways. So maybe I was a little too wordy. Sorry, but that's kind of I didn't get I got started from a desire in my own heart with absolutely no help from anybody except those people that came in later as I forced my foot in the door with them and then they were pretty kind but but as a youngster probably till I was 25 or something I never really got I never had anybody take me out of my wing when I was when I was young.
0: Wow that's I've got like a million follow-up questions that's a lot of great stuff to <laughs> unpack. Oh, I want to just
2: <clears throat> I tend no, to talk
0: too much. But. No, it's great. It's great. It's like, but gosh, it's like, I keep, I, should, I should have brought a note, a pad of paper and write down, oh, i go back and ask about this because I'm sure I'm going to forget because as you were talking, I got, let me, oh. let me start back with high school. So you said it, kind of the, the situation described as kind of like someone, the coach was someone who didn't have a background, but was trying to help the kids out and, and kind of research as he went and help the kids. But you still made it to nationals in that situation.
2: When I went, I would go to state in the high school, and everybody was got beat at sectionals. And I was kind of by myself, and I never had anyone in the room to train with, really. I mean, and that it was it was a. And I don't like to say this because it sounds like excuse, but I'm when you know I went to the um, national sports festival or the nationals or grand nationals and things, and and they would put little bios about us, and I'm looking at all these kids, and they're like, yeah, I started wrestling in the first grade or the second grade or third grade. I'm like. God, I never touched a mat till I was in high school. And I never, never really, and the co- I never even learned how to wrestle until I, I had, I had people so frustrated. I had referees that would grab me after a match and say, hey, you know, you need to learn to wrestle. You could do this and this. And, and these are matches I won. I think I went, I think in my whole high school career, I lost maybe seven matches, And I mean, I I won a lot, but I was, I first, first thing I did was, okay, I'll never be pinned. And I will be there and eventually I'll pin you or I'll outscore you. And then I was like, okay, I got to hold the guy down. And I didn't have a takedown really. I just, I I had a great sprawl. So no one could take me down. So, you know, and so it was just the most elementary way I started this and I wanted to build and grow on it. But the, but the coach, yeah, he didn't know anything about wrestling. I mean, he really didn't. And, uh, and I mean, it's, he, he was a great football coach. He kind of, he could have been a, he played football in college, but he was a, he didn't get the football job and he was a nice enough guy to not be, you know, take his, take his ball and go home. And he coached wrestling. And um, so I I played football and I coach, you know, I went into wrestling because I was trying to. You Know back then, kids did sports. I, I it's kind of unfortunate now because they sit and, and they game all day, but at least I had I at least had some teams at the school,
0: yeah. And, so, well, so it sounds like almost out of sheer athleticism, you're winning. I mean, like without any technique, uh, which yeah, to me, that's applies some really some real amazing natural gifts. Because I mean, there's you know, obviously, that, that's that's got to take something to, to compete at a, even a state level with just kind of some, a handful of uh, techniques, and just being able to wear someone down for the length of a match, that's, that's really, were you, maybe not um, technical wise, but were you always kind of working out, and and like, you know, I don't know, as a kid doing push-ups, and running, and that kind of thing?
2: Um, Not really, I, I was, oh dang, I have on my phone here, I should probably show you a picture of me in the fourth, or in the, I'll show you a picture of me as a, 14-year-old because I have a picture of my high school. I don't know how to do it on the phone. Um, wrestling. But, yeah, it was probably just pure athleticism. I was – athleticism is a strange – people don't understand. Like, athleticism is, is, a, is a term that encompasses a lot of things. But there's there's only about six things that, that determine athleticism. One is just raw strength there's just your horsepower. And I never touched a weight room. I never touched a weight until I got to college because my school didn't even have a weight room. My high school didn't have a weight room. My middle school didn't have, a, my grade school didn't have a weight room. There's no, for, so K through 12, I'd never touched a weight, but I looked like I lifted weights a lot. Um, the, you, uh, there's raw strength. That's just, you know, like I said, your horsepower and a 300 horsepower engine can beat a 400 horsepower engine if it's geared riding in a car and everything. And then there's speed. There's just raw speed. And, and both strength and strength, you know, like You can take somebody that's this strong and work out and get them this strong. But you can't take somebody that's this strong and work them out here. There's, there's, a, there's tendon insertions and ligaments thickness and things that you can make. But there's some people with natural strength. The same with speed. There's also endurance. Like, like McConaughey Gregory shown, there is a component of endurance that's genetic. You know, Dave Schultz, I believe, said, you know, why he won the gold medal? Because they went from three three minute rounds to three two-minute rounds. He said, I just didn't have that in me to no matter how hard I trained. So there's strength, there's speed, endurance. There's also the will to win. Like when you're out there, will you keep fighting? And a fifth thing that's that's as Bobby Knight said better than anyone else, the will to prepare to win is vastly more important than the will to win. Mm-hmm. And those two traits are not in the same they're not the same i've had i've had fighters that would die before they quit on a mat but god they wouldn't make it to practice next day they they, you know when the fight was happening they would never quit they would die before they tapped. they die before they gave up but to come to practice and prepare for they wouldn't necessarily do it and then i've seen people the other way i've seen people that would make it to practice every time they had the golden work ethic but they really didn't have that killer instinct that that deep gameness, I guess, what you would call pit bulls in the fight, and those are five traits that we put in athleticism, and then there's a sixth trait, which is the most difficult to explain. It is, um, I call it savoir faire, being at the right place at the right time. But it's it's kinesthetic awareness, it's a peripheral vision, it's a rhythm, it's a timing, it's a balance, it's a
0: like a, it's joy, a- or-
2: Well, it is, but it's a combination of, and I don't know, because I've just, i am thought of this, but I don't, I haven't really thought about it deeply. So maybe I'm missing one. I'd like some of your listeners out there to tell me what I'm wrong about. But I think those are the only five things or six things that have, but it's a, it's a, it's the guy, it's like a BJ Penn that where you, his, his nervous system's just, and it's not just faster. It's his nervous system is just, when you throw the punch, he just moves quarter of an inch and he misses by it he doesn't move six inches out of the way he knows where quarter inch is enough you know he doesn't he he is at the right place at the right and somebody once said this about me i've had a few people say you know just go in a wild scramble because you'll wind up on top it's that idea that you know if if you throw two guys in there in the wild crazy scramble the one that'll always seem to move his body in the right way and he may not be the strongest or the fast but he's got a a kinesthetic awareness to be at the right place at the right time. Um, and that, thats a, it's a rhythm, it's a timing, it's a balance. It's one reason I think jumping rope is so great. I think jumping rope is a great training technique for many ways. But one thing is I, help, I think it helps your timing, your rhythm, your balance. Great. The other thing about jumping rope is it forces you to concentrate and keep your timing when you're exhausted. If you go run and do road work, you can plod one foot in front of the other no matter how exhausted you are, no matter how clumsy you are, no matter how missed times you are, your feet can go boom, 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 and be out of time. But as soon as your timing fails at jumping rope, you, you miss it. So it forces you to be sharp, timing, rhythm, balance, coordination when you're exhausted. That's one reason why jumping rope is, you know, you can have people fighting for $100 million and they're using a $5 jump rope because it is one of the greatest training tools. And so... And you can write those down and I'd like you to, if I'm missing something, I'd like you to tell me, Um, but I think those traits, and I was real fortunate to have sort of those traits. I had a lot of natural people say like farm boy strength and I was real flexible. I could put my head behind my, my leg behind my head. I was, I was, I could do any, I was the most flexible guy on the team and I had real good balance and really I could jump rope real good, but I didn't, I didn't have access to a weight room. I didn't have access to a coach to show me moves and I just kind of wanted to. Learn, which is, I think, one reason why I've continued. I think now I'm an old man now, but I was like, you know, I could still, I, if I fought myself younger, because I've learned more. Uh, two days ago, I was in the jiu-jitsu gym and we were, I was working with a guy, and we were had one had an outside heel hook and another had an inside heel hook, and an inside heel hook usually beats an outside, but the guy had the outside one in such a way that the guy on the inside couldn't turn. I've never seen that before. And I was like, wow. And I'm looking at it and analyze because I'm, I, a lot of kids say they're wrestlers and they, whatever they learn from say age 10 to 20, the average person will stop. And then you say, well, what did you learn from 20 to 30? Well, not much. You learn 90% of what you, you do from 10 to 20. Well, I want to be somebody who learns as much from 10 to 20. And I want to learn as much from 20 to 30. And I want to learn as much from 30 to 40. And from 30 or 40 to 50, I go, I want to, I want to improve every year. And some people just stop and stagnate. So I think that was, I kind of got started very late, but I also think it's kind of kept me. And that's one reason I really appreciate Tony because he's, he's one of the few guys that's still a student of the, of the game and still, you know, learning. Where there's a lot of coaches that maybe don't, um, they don't progress. They, they I, I, always, I have a prejudice for young coaches and I, sh- and I will say that with a disclaimer that some old coaches are also open minded and young minded and flexible, but some people just, they're using old moves that they haven't progressed. You know, if you have a 50 year old coach and he's coaching the same way he did when he was 20 or 30, there's no reason he's not benefited from his experience. Now, I'm not saying every old coach isn't. There's some that are phenomenal. Like I said, Tom, er- Tom Erickson, I, 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 you know, it looks like uh Kale Sanders. He's just an amazing coach. I mean, he's putting together people and he, he's not stopping with his ankle pick headlock that he used in college. He's, he's really, and I don't know him. So I'm, I'm talking about him third hand, where everybody else I'm talking about firsthand, but it looks to me like, wow, he's staying open-minded and progressive and still going on. So, you want, you want to make sure you have that, they always call it a growth mindset or something. But yeah, you just, you're constantly a lifelong learner of things.
0: Yeah. And you got to kind of, I think it's kind of a love of it. You know, like it just, you, you love to see new things maybe, but you're absolutely right. I think certain people, they kind of plateau at a certain age and uh, or they get stuck in old ways and they, they're they not open to seeing new ways of doing things. And obviously, I mean, I was just thinking about how different jujitsu is now as compared to in the 90s. You know, uh the uh, different, you know, uh, just how they're opening up to leg locks and stuff that maybe what they were doing in like in catching things before. But um yeah, it's interesting because you know, I, I did a little bit in the 90s and now I'm getting back into it with one of uh, one of the friends, one of Tony's uh, students, uh another Jason, he has a school, and it's like, wow, this this approach is very different from what I remember, how we're being taught, you know, it's it's a moving target. It's not the same old, same old. Well,
2: yeah, if you went back to boxing in the John L. Sullivan days and they're doing this or basketball in the you know, 30s when they're, they have the two set jumps, it's, it's it's completely different. I mean, you took anybody out of any good, any fighter now would not get caught in the triangles and arm bars that Hoist Gracie did in the 90s. It just wouldn't, he's, he wouldn't even make it through a, you know, a, a many gyms now. And that's, and I'm not insulting him in any way. He was a pioneer. He's a good guy. I mean, he's, he's, uh, I like him Um, and I get along with everybody. So I'm not, he's just, but I'm not insulting him in any way, but it's just like what people did in the nineties isn't, it's progressed so much. And I think, um, you know, that was one of the things, and that was a great thing. Like the argument people said, because I remember, Instead, I'm old enough to remember. Like in the '70s, every city with 100,000 people across America had a yellow book, a phone book, and there would be master, master Don, a seventh degree black belt in this deadly art that can kill anybody. I mean, it was it was all fraudulent. They couldn't fight at all. It was all fake, and everyone bought that hook, line, and sinker, and it was like, it was like Aristotle was science. You know, he said, well, uh, uh, gravity, uh, you know, we didn't understand that. Everybody just took what he said about things, you know, say like heavier objects fall faster than lighter, o- you know, lighter objects. And everyone believed that for a thousand years until one guy finally dropped him off a tower and looked. But And so everyone believed that. So it was, it was amazing when they finally did the first UFCs. Where they invited, hey, you kung fu guy, you karate guy, you judo guy, you boxer, you wrestler, you jujitsu jitsu guy. Hey, I'll come together and let's find out who's, who's the best. Y- younger people today don't appreciate how radical that was. I mean, that was like questioning the Pope. That was like um, breaking dogma to do that. Because people said, Well, I wonder what would happen. And, and then in the old days, you know, Judo Jean LaBelle. And I remember, um, I, I, okay, the summer between my sophomore and fresh, or no, my sophomore and junior year of high school, I went on a little walkabout. Like before, before the movie Crocodile Dundee, I went on a walkabout and I wandered around the country and caught buses and hitchhiked. And I wound up in the Bay, I wanted to see Canada. And I wound up in the basement of Joe Pazendak. I stayed, stayed with him for, and uh, I was 16 years old. He was an old catch wrestler. he um, predates, he was kind of a contemporary of Luthez and he predates Vern Gagne by a lot. And he showed me, I tried to learn from him. And I, um, he told me, he said, you know, in the old days, Joe Lewis was out of money and he would referee wrestling matches because the irs you know just hacked him real bad and for back taxes and things and they he owed money and that because the irs tax code kind of chewed him up and i said and he would the you know wrestling was semi is predetermined but they kind of you know they some of those guys really could shoot and Joe Lewis and he said, Yeah, Joe Lewis. The two wrestlers getting an argument with him, and Joe Lewis put up his fists, and, and the wrestler would back down and go, Oh, <laughs> and the crowd just loved it and they'd eat it up. And I said, And I said to uh, Joe, I, I go, Well, I, you know, Joe Lewis was old, but he could probably still hit. And he said, Any wrestler there could put him in there, put him in his hip pocket. And I said, Really? He said, They had a rule that. Anybody that touched Joe Lewis would be banned forever, never wrestle again, and all that. And I said, really, why'd they have to do that? He said, can you imagine one of these wrestlers that said, yeah, I broke Joe Lewis's jaw and tries to get over and, you know, do that. So even then, even back then, there was that argument, you know, about wrestlers and boxers, but no one actually tested it. That's so, they were not scientific enough to just go out and have a match. It was all speculation. It's it's so funny to me as I said it goes back 2000 years to Aristotle he would claim something no one actually put it to the test that's why we, we have to be scientists and actually test and see what these leg locks do and see what the i'm today i'm doing leg locks to black belts in the gym that they haven't seen before it's crazy because people sometimes they'll determine it's, you know no no leg locks or no this or that and um, and judo now has changed all its rules so because wrestlers are going in and dominating So instead of learning to handle some of the moves that a wrestler do, because in Hawaii we have a very good situation where judo is a high school sport. So we have kids that do say Hmm. football, then they go into the winter sport of wrestling and then they go into the spring sport of judo. So that's awesome actually. Yeah. They've got, so in Hawaii the wrestlers get three months of wrestling at high school level with a, you know, 50, 60 matches, and then they go to judo for two or three months and get 50, 60 matches. So they, they really get a lot of grappling time. And, but the judo now is kind of the national judo has changed their rules. So wrestlers don't have, can't kind of use the same move. And they, they've altered that a bit.
0: Yeah. That's kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking because there's a lot of kind of cool old judo techniques that are going to be lost. I think, you know, in a generation or so, because, that you always train for whatever the competition is, because that's, you know, the way the sports work. Or even like if you own a dojo or whatever, you want to have the medals and the trophies.
2: And so- Yeah, you want so, to have them on the wall. And and if, and, and, yeah, 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 go on.
0: No, I was just going to say, if if the technique will not get you that medal, even if it's a valid technique for self-defense, you're probably not going to train it as hard, you know? And that's, a, it's a real shame because there's, yeah, there's. I mean, we, we've seen, like you mentioned, leg locks, you know, it's, it's kind of, it kind of goes through like waves where there's probably a very sophisticated- leg lock game you know back in the day and then for various reasons it disappeared obviously people could get injured so there's some risk but it's a shame that i feel like historically we often go through phases of having to reinvent the wheel because we've lost some like important information that like you know uh some guys had back in the day but for whatever rules or whatever we've lost
2: well and and yeah and and a lot of that's for and i remember joe pazendek said to me um, because he didn't, he was so old. He didn't like the rule that you can't close your hands, lock your hands in high school wrestling and folk style. And that rule was put in place. So obviously the match wouldn't be boring and the kid, you know, a guy can get up and it'd be a little more entertaining. And he said, you know, by putting that rule in now, nobody knows how to get out from the bottom. And if you'd have that rule, people would have been forced to learn how to get away with the class hand. And then in, freestyle today you're coaching a kid like you're having a kid come from folk style to freestyle you say well don't get up there's no point for escaping and you if you get taken back down the guy gets another point so the escape nobody in freestyle wrestling knows how to if if we had a combat situation and a great freestyle wrestler got taken down who had only done freestyle how would he get away there's no point for escaping. Nobody. they just sit there parterre and they wait for the referee to put them back up after 10 seconds. So that's completely ruins that aspect of the, of self-defense. You, you know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure.
0: Yeah. 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 You
2: can have some great Olympic wrestlers from other countries who might have great body control, but they don't have that necessary. Mat control. And I've watched that. I've watched um, kids that are real good at jujitsu, maybe start wrestling. And it's funny, they get tore up in freestyle, but they do better in folk style in the beginning because it's kind of closer to jiu-jitsu, the, the combat things. And like you said, with the leg locks, and I, I know that leg lock because Japan um, <clears throat> had was was ahead of leg locks. And they had good leg locks when I was fighting Pancrace, and, and then and the Japanese were really good at them. And then uh, Frank Shamrock with the lion's den really got and he, and Ken Shamrock, but Frank was I think a little even better. Got really smooth at putting on those heel hooks, and he put out like four guys, like boom, 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 like and 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 in Japan at that time, the the fighters were professional fighters that were like employees of the company, and they would fight each other kind of like NBA players are members of the team, and you'd have you know the Boston Celtics fight the Los Angeles Lakers you know, this week, but suddenly all those guys went out and they didn't outlaw them, but they got close to that where they were not going to have heel hooks anymore because it just was too damaging because of that, you know, it took them out. So one of the solutions immediately is, well, don't make that move illegal. I think that also happens like in neck cranks, the old fashioned can opener in, in, um, you know, jujitsu, if you just bend down and grab the top of someone's head and curl it to you when they got you in the guard, It won't ever submit a good guy, but it sure makes a good guy like I got to let go, or the slam in uh, jujitsu. Now, where if somebody wraps the guard around me and I can just pick them up and slam on their head, which we've seen that happen in the UFC a few times, right? Mm -hmm. How many? That's illegal in any submission things, but you don't see the guards anymore in UFC where they're allowed to pick somebody up and slam because that's kind of that pick up and slam has kind of been worthless. And I would guarantee if in submission tournaments the pickup and slam was allowed you would see an entirely different game the only reason half the people's guards work in pure submission tournaments is because that pickup and slam is outlawed the only reason you have people careless with their legs is well we're not going to do any heel hooks or leg locks or any you know those so you're correct in it's a fine line because i i completely think the combat sports should be as safe as possible and we absolutely should not be injuring people. We should be doing it as much as we can, but it also should be authentic where I can't say this is a good move because it works only because your counter is illegal you know (laughs) this is yeah
0: we talk about this a lot actually on the podcast of how getting the balance right is so difficult um because you're right you want to have as much authenticity as possible but you also want to stay healthy you know if, if if i get injured or i injure my training partner a i can't train anymore and i'm actually more vulnerable if my goal is to be safer on the street let's say but now all of a sudden, my leg is jacked up for six months. Guess what? You know, Or if let's say I'm permanently jacked some you know in some yeah. way, because some of these moves will permanently debilitate you. Um, and I, I was just thinking about how like, you know, we, we, you're talking about karate movies back. They always used to talk about how um, they're like, at least this is maybe like a, a, a fictional cliche, but where they were a lot more selective about the students that they let in, you know, they'd go through some type of a test or some kind of a thing to make. And basically to me, it's to kind of make sure, Hey, this person isn't going to be an asshole and hurt my other students. Cause if I'm going to give you basically a loaded gun of a technique, you know, like I think Mm -hmm. of, you know, there's certain moves, like, you know, Tony's front face lock that that could be, that could be it for whoever's on the receiving end. If someone's reckless with it and uh so I kind of understand holding back on some of the information, like maybe, you know, if you're jiu school, maybe the first six months I don't give you leg locks because I want to see how hard you roll. Like how hard are you going to, you know, put on a Kimura? Cause if you're just, if you're going a hundred percent for it and you don't care about your partner, well then maybe you're not ready for heel hooks because you know, it's less forgiving. But if I can see, I mean, I think they've gone to the too far to the other side where, was, and I think this might be changing, but I mean, Fairly recently, there certain schools are still waiting until you have your brown belt. Which for a lot of average athletes, that's at least eight years in, maybe. You know, it's like, gosh, at that point, you've developed habits of not watching your legs. I have, I have a coworker who is a brown belt, and he he would normally compete every year, and when he became a brown belt, he stopped competing because he's like, I am not ready for people to put leg locks on me. Like to train himself to relearn his game, to protect his legs. I mean, he's got eight years of programming where he didn't have to worry about that. And, uh, so to me, I I think there's a balancing point. And I think as martial artists or as combat athletes, I don't think there's a right answer. I think it's always kind of like, yeah, how much can we, how close can we get to the line? You know? And I know like in Tony's perspective, he wants to take it as close to the line as possible, you know, like he, he would love it where if we could train with some, some of the lower level rips where it's not, um, you know, that get you thrown out of another school for kind of being a, a bad sport, but that's part yeah. of the game too. That's part of the history. Uh, but a lot of people don't want to train like that. And again, you have to know you got a, a, a training partner who's not going to get reckless with you. So it, I, I get your point and it's tough because it, if you take things out for safety, you're going to, you're, you're sacrificing. It's a trade-off. And I think a lot of times we get it wrong as far we too far on the side of safety or you know, I, and it's hard because obviously have a school with 100 students, it's hard to scrutinize everybody to know that they're going to be, everybody's going to be safe at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, it's tough, especially like I was thinking about like high school coaches with kids. I mean, you got kids coming in, you've got to take care of them. And so I'm, I'm sure that's kind of how things evolved the way they did. Uh, but sometimes it was, yeah, it's too far. So um, it's almost like we've had to relearn a lot of the lessons of the past. And, and like you said, um, do this scientifically. I mean, fortunately, I was thinking about Tony's, like, you know, he's one of the links to the past as far as some of the techniques. I mean, that's one of the exciting things about for me about his stuff is that it's like some of those harder techniques from the past that were um, censored out of, you know, amateur wrestling and professional wrestling, uh, they're still out there. There are not many people learning them and practicing them, but it's like it would be a shame if we didn't have people taking them to the next generation.
2: Yeah, that's funny because I, I have a 13-year-old who's who's pretty physically impressive. And I said, I've got to get him out there to Tony before too long because I... First of all, it's hard for a dad to teach their kid and, and I want to be a dad, <laughs> you know, there. Because that's it, uh, it's interesting because he's... Well, I'll tell you this story and then I'll, I'll respond. Well, I'll respond first to what you said earlier. You're absolutely right. And I was in a very because I had the IF Academy and I called my, my system integrated fighting, IF, IF Academy. And it was, and it truly meant integrated. I meant integrate means to bring all the parts together to make whole. And I wanted to integrate all of the old tech, all the leg. I wanted all the kicks of Muay Thai, but I wanted a hand stance of boxing. I wanted all the submissions of catch rest. I wanted all the upper body submissions of jujitsu. I wanted to bring that all together in a cohesive, whole fighting system. And I said when I met Tony, he was probably as close to me. I was Like, yeah, that's exactly right. It's funny, you know, Tony and I are real, uh, he likes jazz. I like jazz. There's so many similarities between this on that. And that's he does. He's one of the few guys. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. I, I want to learn that. And I I still use some moves and I, I credit him. But when I had my school and I never had I was fortunate because I never had to make money and go get my hundreds students and and you know sign contracts and do that because I I was always doing other stuff so I kind of did it otherwise and I've she's I've I've had you know five six UFC veterans in the room at the same time with a 60 year old man and a 10 year old kid and I I had a, a big barn with a huge amount of mats. I had a big loft in the upstairs and I had that matted with, with um, all the mats from Anderson university when they dropped their wrestling program, Anderson college, whatever, when it was, and they dropped. And I had, you know, I had full mats and I had, I had punching bags and I, I got to work with things and people. And I put, like I said earlier, I had moves, you know, you stand up these, and I laminated the piece of paper computer printout and I put them on the wall. So I didn't hold anything back. But I said this, you are 100% responsible for your partner's safety. If you hurt somebody, it's your fault. If they didn't tap and you kept going and you hurt them, it's your fault. If, if, if If you put on a heel hook and they didn't tap and you injured them, it's your fault. They're a dumbass and didn't tap, but it's still your fault. If you put on a neck crank and they don't tap, It isn't their responsibility to tap. It's your responsibility to not hurt them. And if anybody hurts somebody, I I break their face. I would, I, you know, nobody was, it was not tolerated. And I said, put, check your ego at the door. You come in here and you don't hurt anybody. And if somebody, and there's no ego. So it's not like, well, this ass and, and, I would have sometimes people say, man, I had him four times and he wouldn't tap. I'm like, well, he's not going to be back because he's an egomaniac who can't tap. And I also did this. Somebody roll with me and they put me in a triangle and I'd always let, you know, moves go because I always want to learn how to get out of moves. So I always let people get me in things and they get 90% of the way done. And then I'd start fighting, you know, Uh and I'd say, gee whiz, I tap for everybody in here. If you are just, because it's very easy for a good wrestler positionist to never get in trouble. What is he learning? You know, and I say start out, okay, you're you, 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 a guy that is a level eight. And he's fighting a guy that's a level five. Why does the level five guy start with a cross mount and have halfway, you know, a Kimura? Now go. You know, get the guy where they're kind of starting level. But don't, first of all, you got to clear out that ego of, oh, I never tap for anybody. That's bullshit. You know, Hickson did that. I, I never tap. Bullshit. You get your, do, and, I, and Hickson's a good guy. I'm not just, you no, you want to, I, I could, I uh I had a kid, long, about 6'3", and I was talking to somebody. And he was, he tried this ch- choke on me like four or five times. He wasn't doing it right. And then I, uh, people keep calling my phone so I'm having to swipe away from them. Sorry about that. And this other guy who's a black belt was talking to him and he finally did it. And I was talking, he caught my larynx right under there, Ah, almost broke it like a plum. And I tapped, I was like, you know, good. But that's not, that's nothing shameful to happen. So I think the solution to that is first, everybody, Taps at some time it's not like you have your elite that never tap and your black belts never get tapped by a brown belt and your brown belts never get tapped by a purple belt that's just that's setting up a fragile house of cards that will fall apart. Secondly, you don't hurt anybody. It's not the person's responsibility to tap it's your responsibility we're not we're in practice now you're all making each other better. You cannot hurt somebody I have and I will many times be at a strange school and i because i jump in with any i'll go with everybody and i'll go to a strange school never roll with a guy and i've got a lot of cool little moves like tony has and probably some number and i'm i get something and the guy didn't even know he's in danger and i let it go nobody maybe even knows he was in danger and then sometimes later on i'll say hey i had this and he's like oh my gosh and sometimes he's open-minded you know it's like oh that dang thanks that's cool and other times you know, they're not so much, but that's not my problem. You're there to make yourself better. Check your ego at the door. Everybody taps everybody. It's not this matter of pride and you don't hurt anybody. And it's not their responsibility to tap, to not be hurt. It's your responsibility not to press it. And if he's so much of a dumbass and he's so arrogant and so egomaniac that he won't tap when he's in trouble, let him go. He's not worth your time. And that's Worked very well for me. And you know what? You can talk to people all over the world that have trained at IF Academy. They've all heard that speech and that they all like training there. And they and, and that's what we do.
0: Wow, sounds great. Um, yeah, I know that's a great attitude because yeah, I think there are people who get locked into that mind frame, especially like the hierarchy you said.
2: And... The hierarchy is horrible. It is a horrible, it's a rigid religious structure that is dumb and not conducive to flexible learning
0: well people also get afraid of taking risks you know like yes and you know like i've had people where like they just clam up and they know that i can't pry loose you know an Mm -hmm. arm or something but they're not progressing and if they were thinking in terms of self-defense well it's like that's great but you're very vulnerable in ways i can't take advantage of you know just because you lock up i've seen people go into a turtle position and they'll try and ride it out and it's like that's great that I can't, can open, you know, I can't pry loose, you know, I don't have, you know, but think about how vulnerable you are, you know, (laughs) in a real situation, you wouldn't want to stay there for more than a split second. So, uh, but yeah, uh, I think exactly, you know, I've, I've spar, you know, in the gym that I go at, sometimes there's girls that we roll with, and I could muscle out of everything they do, you know, if I wanted to, uh, uh, but it's like, all right, well, let's, Yeah, let's let them get my back and see if I can, you know, how long can they hold it? Can I get out of that now? You know, like in, and it's, you're right, it's kind of a, you have to evolve your thinking. And I think the ego is such a big part of that. And to have a school where you, where you encourage people to dispel that. And even like I said, as the instructor saying, hey, I tap, you know, I I get out there and I get tapped I screw up or I'm going to take a risk because if everybody's afraid of like let's say I've got a blue belt or a purple belt and like oh shit this blue belt's about to get me and all of a sudden it turns into like a hundred percent live situation you know Because they're worried of protecting their rep I mean there's so many scenarios psychologically where it can just and so diffusing that I think uh from the top down is such a great thing and I think it would help students psychologically to take risks and evolve uh, and get more out of their training and be safer. So yeah, I think a hundred percent, uh, it makes a complete sense.
2: Yeah. I was, uh, it's, it's the whole belt color hierarchy is, is causes some problem. And, and, and well, here and and people, sometimes it's funny because you see my white belts here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Um, I just wear a white belt. I've never progressed. Hicks on, I think offered me a blue belt back in like 94 or something. I mean, you don't, um, you don't, the, the belt is nothing. It, 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 I always say, you're only as good as you are today. A ship does not sail on winds that blew yesterday. And I never awarded belts, to, and I never um, thought, because when you're doing that, it becomes secondary to actually learning something. And just what you said, that just sit and stalemate someone just a stalemate and hold and not and, and say okay they didn't tap me well what did you learn I mean that is I um, I was rolling with a real good black belt a couple of weeks ago and I, I let him take my back and he put on um, uh, the, he body triangle me and I was like wow because I, I was like I need to work on somebody by triangle in me he had nice long you know legs and boom, boom he had a body triangle in me and I'm I'm working. I did. I think um, I, I, I just I had just met him. I didn't know him at all. So I didn't do a shin lock because Tony, Tony, you know, Tony shikini has got some of the best shin locks in the world, best shinlock lock in the world I've ever seen. And I had some others, but I didn't do it. And there's, you know, I can even tuck my chin and grab his head and try to put the crown on my head back mm-hmm. and, and, cry you know, do it. And then and I. Uh, you can and you can do like a, and now I can't do this anymore because I'm just not flexible but you know you can tw- put their legs in and figure four their thing and do but I, I was playing with stuff and doing stuff and then the uh we only had five minutes the gym had a five minute timer so I got back with him and I let him he got another you know I let him get another one on me because I wanted to work on that because I hell I don't know I've been trying I don't know anybody's been able to put a body triangle on me on because I'm probably fat now and uh uh, I was like, this is great. This is so, I was so happy. And I think he was probably taking it a little easy on me cause I was new or we were new to each other, you know? So he wasn't going real hard either, but we, it was a very, I want to be in new positions. I want to be, I want to try everything because I could a good, especially a good wrestler can take a, a jujitsu person and just never let them have anything. But just like you said, and I, I, if I roll with a girl and I roll with girls, I don't, I don't discriminate on any and I'll roll. And i I tell people this too in the gym. I said, throw away your muscles and just throw away your muscles and train. Just practice as if, and I, I do this. And this was in my goal since I was a little kid. And I thought about this because I was, I was always pretty scientifically minded. I said, if I was fighting a clone of myself with exact same strength, exact same speed, exact same rhythm and timing and balance, exact same everything, would my move work? Because the move is superior. You know, if you had two clones and one had hooks in in the back, he probably finished the match and win. You know, if you had two clones and one had, you know, a good triangle on the other, the one that got the triangle first would win. That's a good move. You aren't powering out of a triangle from your clone who has it on you. Now you might be able to power out of a triangle from a girl or a smaller guy so I always, and I, I was always conscious of that. I, I think because I was always strong. I never really felt like I, anybody outmuscled me on a match. Um, even college wrestling or anything, I never felt like people were really muscling me. But I um, well, maybe Tom Erickson. He's he's pretty freaky strong and big. He's just so large also. He, and he's um, Did you
0: actually wrestle him or did you just meet him? Or.
2: Yeah, yeah. We wrestled a lot. He wow. trained jiu-jitsu and stuff. And, and we, yeah, no, he's a great guy. He's a, he, and That's why I said I compliment him because he's such a freakishly impressive physical specimen, like a Bob Sappers. You know, he's just such a freak. He's probably one of the most impressive physical specimens you ever want to see. Actually, you know who the most impressive physical specimen I ever saw was? Mark Gastineau. Hmm. I, I, when he was boxing, I boxed him. And, you know, we're we're boxing and he was... Um, and I'm, I just, and I was like, shit, that's a six foot five, 275 pound gazelle. I mean, he's just, he just looks beautiful. He, and he doesn't look like a steroidly enhanced freak. He doesn't look like he has an extra ounce of weight muscle on his frame that doesn't belong there. His body did not grow out of its natural proportions. You know, he is just like holy smokes. He's just that's just he. he and so, um, and just the to, to punching and the weight and the movement of his hands, like his forearm, you know, just like wow. Um, so anyway, there there are those people. Um, and I, he actually felt stronger than me. I, I never wrestled him. I just boxed with him and sparred with him and did it informally. So I got to push and shove with him a little but Shakes. He's you know he's a for the NFL, so. I'm not pushing him around, (laughs) Uh, but he was he was probably the most impressive, just raw physical specimen I've ever seen. Um, It'd be interesting to see some people that had uh, other comparisons on that, too. But um, yeah, to to rely on your strength against person A and then rely on your strength against girl B. And little guy C and then get a hold of somebody who's your clone, that's that's worthless. You wanna fight everybody, you wanna I'm sorry, you wanna train against everybody like you are gonna to have to fight your clone or somebody a little better than you, a little stronger than you. And then then the only you know, you may not be able to control how fast you are, how strong you are, your size and how tall you are and how much you weigh, but you can control how much you know and how well fast you can apply a move and how smooth and seamlessly you can flow from one position to the other. That's the one thing you can control. So that's very valuable.
0: Yeah. And eventually our strength and everything and our speed eventually fails, you know, we get older and it's all that's left is your technique. And it's, and it's hard to like, that's another thing you have to balance as a martial artist because the instinct is there to use. And that's something I struggle with too, is that sometimes I just try and do something, as fast or as strong as I can, because that 's what I need to, you know because <laughs> I, I realize i 'm going to be in trouble otherwise, uh, but ultimately, the ideal is it 's all technique that wins, all strategy and all technique that wins that 's the ideal that you go for. so I want to ask you before uh, there 's been a lot of fascinating talk, but I, so high school you 're already kind of uh, wrestling at a national level sometimes. where did you go to college? Where did you wrestle at college?
2: Well, I tell you what I went to um wabash which was a division division three school and i picked that because it was well i actually probably picked it because the coach came after me pretty hard and it was a super academic you know they said oh that's the rutgers of the midwest that's like ivy league for the midwest and i was i was so dumb and ignorant uh, or just ignorant i i because harvard recruited me for football and um my mom said, oh, you don't need to go out of state. And I'm like, okay, mom. <laughs> and so, all, you know, and, and North Carolina recruited me for wrestling. They had, um, who was the, they had this super big guy, um, Tab Thacker, I think, at that yeah. time. Or He's like 450 or something. And and I was a heavyweight. I was only about 210. And that was, there was no limit. There was no 275 pound limit. then. But I really, at that time, I thought, I'm going to get a gold medal in the Olympics in wrestling. And I really, and at that time, one reason I picked... Um, because I, I I could because IU is, is in the Big Ten. I could I could I wrestled their heavyweight. I could beat him, and I but I but Div three. Um, you could go to the nationals. You could go for if you won the Div three nationals, you could go to the Div one nationals.
1: Hmm.
2: Back then, who's the guy was it, um, that won? He he won three Div two titles and three or no, he won three div two titles and three div one title who care was a carl helsberg or helsing or hell somebody that he's he's like considered one of the greatest college wrestlers because he won six national ncaa titles and he won him in the division two and then he went to division three and went in the pigtails of that and won that and um so i kind of went there and i wrestled and i there was i um there's a good, I beat a senior one of the nationals. I was a freshman. I beat him and I got the spot and I wrestled, but I had a, and I, oh, another thing, a reason I went there was because I, the coach, the football coach said to me, because I, I had a tremendously frustrating football career because I was a defensive tackle in high school and I was about 210 and that's just not a defensive tackle size in college, you know? And I wanted to always play running back or linebacker or fullback or something like that. And I was fast. I had a real good 40 time. I was real. I, in high school, I could outrun all the linebackers, but I was a defensive tackle. And I got the, the, and the football coach there and the wrestling coach said, Hey, you come here. And the football coach said, I'll give you any position you want and you have it. It's, It's not that I'll give you a day tryout. You can sit there and train and keep it, learn to do this. So I was like, okay, I'll get to do the position in football. I want, I get to do the wrestling. I can go to the nationals and wrestling. School super academic, and I'm like, so that's why I went to college and wrestled. Um, on there, so that was kind of that.
0: People would probably kill me if I don't circle back to this. So after college, when did you
2: uh, meet and then uh, roll with Hickson? Um, let's see. Hickson was doing a dang. Everybody's calling me. Um.
0: He's probably Uh, Hickson saying, don't tell the story.
2: Yeah. No, Hickson was doing, there was a seminar up in Chicago. And I lived in Indianapolis. So it was like a three, three and a half hour drive. Was this like 93? Yeah, it would have been like that. I might have been there. Okay. Well, did you, uh, you saw me tie in with Hickson then? Well, so uh, if
0: it's the seminar I was at. Yeah, well, it was like, it it was impressive in some ways because they split the class in half. It was a big gym. And I was actually, I was like, I think he said anybody 185 pounds and above, Aunt Hickson was going to roll with. Everybody below was going to roll with his brown belt. I don't know if you yeah, remember Marie, that. that
2: was his brown belt. For, no, he, was it Maurice or Luis? Was oh, brown I don't, belt? I, don't,
0: I, I don't remember the name of the guy. But I actually was, I had, I had to roll against his brown belt, um, mm-hmm. and with little or no experience. And the guy was actually pretty cool with it. I think he could have destroyed me pretty quickly. But, yeah. uh, you know, he was pretty casual about probably because he had 50 guys to go through too or whatever. Right. Yeah.
2: To save his energy.
0: But uh, so I I don't remember seeing. I, I remember seeing a few people I knew who were bigger. I watched the people I knew, Russell, but it's, it's so long ago. I can't even remember. And I do think there's video clips of that out on YouTube because I've well, seen this stuff.
2: Well, that, yeah. In, I, geez, I remember I met a Pat McAfee and I got some friends from there. There's a guy as a, uh, as a Beach Grove policeman too, cause I, they saw me there and they mentioned it. And I, um, Beach Grove is a little suburb out of Indianapolis. Um, so I did that seminar, you know, and I'm trying to, I'm learning, I'm sitting in the front, trying to learn, trying to, you know, figure everything out. And I went with him a couple times and, um, the one, and I pulled my leg in the one time I said, if he couldn't tap me, couldn't tap me. I finally got, it, it was getting worn out. I was just tired. Cause I was, know nervous and didn't know how to breathe properly or any of that stuff and you're kind of there so after we went there he's like hey and he he gave me his pager number because that was back before cell phones and he said here's my pager you will always be able to contact me i want you to come and train and fight and and all this so then i um i made a i flew out to la to school and those other two belts, one was a black belt and one was a brown belt. And I believe Maurice was the brown belt in 93 and Luis was the black belt. And Hickson never rolled with me again on there. He <laughs> never would roll with me. I'm like, you sucker. And but Maurice and Luis did. And I believe Luis was the black belt. And he were, they were smaller. And he taught me everything. He made me. Put my hands behind my back and work the guard and, and do everything. And I my gi was soaking wet and I'd put it out in the sun just so the UV lights would kill the funk and nastiness. <laughs> and I I stayed there and trained, I think for one week, maybe 10 days, and, and just sucked up every bit of knowledge I possibly could. Took every class from the morning to the night. And then I came, you know, came back to the Midwest. So I I basically knew everything that black belts could do to you and knew it do you know and I did the same thing though but I wasn't and I'll tell you one thing see I never tried there was a point then when I could muscle those brown and black belts of his and maybe you know give him a harder time than I did but I did wasn't I wasn't trying to do that it wasn't like oh ho, ho, I tapped one of Hickson's black belts I was no I wanted to learn I absolutely wanted to try to figure this out you know And they were very, they were super good, super cool, super generous um, on all the stuff. That was back when Hickson had those shitty green mats with with gaps in between them. You know, his school. I've got pictures of it. And it was not a, I remember I went there and I was like, Daniel, this isn't as near as nice as any of the wrestling rooms in the Midwest. Of course, I'm sure Rent in LA is Ten times what the rent is in the Midwest. So I remember going there, and going, Dad, these mats suck, and this place there. But I didn't say any of that. Of course, I was there just to learn, and and um, he was he wouldn't roll with me anymore. Pretty much of that. He and and it, he has a reputation to keep and all that, you know. Um, but but he was so far ahead of his time because at that time, like people criticized, you know, when the first match between uh hoist gracie and dan severin you know dan severin eventually got caught in the triangle but you know what dan severin never seen a triangle he never worked to get out of a triangle let him work get out of a triangle a couple times let him work a month two or three weeks on that and he won't ever get caught in it again but the the power because i don't want somebody to miss you know, take a chunk of this video and say, oh, Jason was talking shit about somebody else. And I, I'm not. And, uh, and people know that I don't. But the idea that, hey, we're going to put all these people together and have them fight each other and see who comes out on top just wasn't done. The, the value of that was amazing. Before the, before the first UFCs, you had people arguing death punches and one shot, one punch, one kill. I mean, I, I hung around black belts who believe that stuff. Oh, and, they, and they beat they beat their knuckles on boards and shit to get these big cal- calcium deposited knuckles. Yeah, one of my punches will just knock anybody out and all this crazy stuff. And so it was super valuable on that. I mean, it, it, the, the pioneering and the progression of our sport has just skyrocketed. And even now, people have gone to kicking the calf. Who thought about kicking the calf, a very small muscle, which would totally depilitate someone. Or when Khabib, oh, I'm going to triangle their legs and come creeping up on them like that. You know, these techniques that are constantly being pioneered are just beautiful, you know, and there's, and there's old ones that are being lost because they've been thrown away.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll kind of second what you're saying. Cause there are people out there who occasionally will badmouth uh, some of the Gracie's and their level of grappling, but. Uh, One, regardless, they went out there and uh, I think probably their their most important contribution. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is a lot of people have gone back. I think there's some judo historians now who are showing that a lot of like probably all of those techniques have existed in judo for ages. You know, the triangle wasn't innovated by them. But I think that's besides the point. I think the point and where they should deserve some credit is kind of reminding the world the value of grappling in a combat situation. They were willing to get into striking matches, which is grappling. And that, like you said, for a lot of people was very theoretical. I mean, I I trained at was kind of what I would call a proto mixed martial arts school in Chicago, Degerberg Academy, where they were already kind of mixing karate and boxing. They kind of already realized you need multiple systems and they were already exploring Muay Thai and things like that. So I think... I think there are pockets, and I mean, you can even talk about Jeet Kune do. I mean, they, they were at yeah. least theoretically talking about mixing martial arts, but they didn't get into the ring and do it. You know, they didn't, they didn't put their, their Well, and that's the thing. Gracie the
2: says, here, try to knock my head off. I'll get in the ring and you can try to punch me in the face. And, uh, Hoy, you know, nobody else had done that. And the other thing is, when anyone criticizes the Gracie's ground game, they are being, Unfair because they're saying this. Well, the Gracies in ninety three, ni- Gracies in nineteen nineties, would be destroyed by blah blah in two thousand twenty. Well, okay. According to that, uh, Jesse Owens is going is a is a punk runner, and uh, McEnroe's a punk tennis player, and uh, you know the, the, you're you're not you're not comparing apples to apples. You have to compare each man in his time period with his contemporaries. And so don't say to me, well, Hoist Gracie, if he tried to get in the UFC today, would be destroyed. Say to me, who else from that time period would be successful in the UFC today? You know, that's fair. Um, and you're, you're right. I got choked unconscious by Because I, I went to IU. I transferred from Wabash to IU, which was a bigger school. And um, they I was president of the Jiu-Jitsu Club in 1983. And uh, Matt Osmond was a real good Jiu-Jitsu, Judo guy. And he choked me unconscious. Um, actually, no, I don't think it was a triangle choke. It was a gi choke. But it was one of those, you know, churning gi chokes from, from judo choked me on un- kind I was whipped, you know, I was a good wrestler, great, good college wrestler coming after him and giving him all kinds of trouble. And he was a real good judo guy and jujitsu guy. And he, we had geez on and he got that collar choke on me and I went out, I started getting lightheaded and, and he stopped and he was like, and he even thought he might've killed me and damaged me because he hadn't choked that many people out. We didn't realize, you know, cause he's kind of thought choking. So even back then there were those moves. So, and John Lang was a black belt, full contact karate guy and i was boxing golden gloves and i was practicing karate with him and he was and i taught. he said i had to go do the golden gloves he went to the golden gloves and got his ass kicked just his nose blasted over his face but guess what he did it no other karate guy in the state would and we were talking and stuff you know and he he didn't it's like oh i learned something you know so yeah there was that mixture but it was so rare and now it's pretty common but it's almost like people now are trying to um hoard up the knowledge and and put it in little pockets and and try to re compartmentalize it
0: Mm. hey so how did you first find out about tony
2: oh man uh you know i i don't even know i think i used to go up to uh Bob Shermer's and, and, and Brian Gasaway and Shoney Carter and all those guys, you know, cause I trained with Shoney Carter and I was, cause he, you know, he was very knowledgeable. So I trained any, if you were within a drive, a two day drive or a one day drive of me, I would come out and train with him. And, uh, I don't even know how I first connected with him. I think I got up to Chicago and heard something from, heard somebody from somebody and, um, like, you know, that kind of happens. Like, for example, uh, Jake Clark was out here in Hawaii and he was an alternate for the 2016 Olympics and 2020 Olympics. And BJ Penn moved him out to Hawaii to train him for um, fighting, you know, because he, he was a great wrestler and he gave him a real good um, look of what Matt Hughes would be like or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm at the gym, up at the USC gym here and I'm rolling with people and, and they go, um, and then they're doing pretty good. And they go, Hey, you, you need to roll with Jake. I'm like, Oh, who's Jake. And like, I don't know. You know? So like a month later, this guy in the locker room's like, Hey, are you Jason Godwise? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, are you Jake Clark? And I go, yeah. So sometimes people just direct you to each other, you know? So that's mm-hmm. how I met him. And I think I, I, I only bring that up because I think that's how I met Tony. It's like, somebody says, Hey, you need to roll meet Tony. You, you uh, you're really, um into this stuff and tony Shakini's really into this stuff you guys ought to meet so i think it was one of those things and i don't know if i looked him up or he like i think i probably looked him up i don't know if he looked me up and um then one of those things like wow you know i start picking his brain and he's picking my brain and i'm like and i thought wow this guy really knows his stuff and so i and it's really unfortunate because It always seemed like our schedules, we weren't that far apart. We were only about a three-hour drive apart, but I didn't get up there. I went up there, I probably went up to Chicago and drove up to Tony's to to see him, I don't know, three or four times, and that's about it. It's really unfortunate. Every time, you know, I went up, I'd go up to his house, and we we just, it was one of those things where wherever we, we we would end up talking until two in the morning, you know? It was one of those things where an hour or two hours isn't enough, so it was like, I'd see him in the morning and we would talk and exchange information and it would go. And he's a, you know, some people, (laughs) some people top out, you know, after a fight, some people, you have what they call the five minute conversation. How's the weather. It's good. And that's about all they got. They're kind (laughs) of shallow. (laughs) And then other people, you're like, well, what's this? And you know, what do you think of, and then you're pretty, you know, you talk a little bit more and then you're done after five minutes and you're done after, then after about an hour, they, they're they saying the same story. They're kind of a one trick pony, but Tony's a guy that you can talk to and you never plumb the depth of where you never get to the bottom of where he's at. You've never exhausted the supply of information and it, and it doesn't have to be just wrestling. It then not be, it can be, you know, Tony's a guy, you can talk about boxing. You can go back to John L. Sullivan and you can see how, Corbett won the title and Fitzsimmons and he'll explain what happened in those matches. And then, you know, he can talk about when Hart got, the. Th- and then you talk about wrestlers and you talk about Gamma or Hackenschmidt or Gotch, or, you know, I, I was like, yeah, I, I worked out on uh, the workout bench, and Frank Gotch's workout bench. I got to do when I was, I, you know, you talk, cause I, I told him about that. He's like, yeah, he knew what that was. And then you talk and then, you know, jazz, and you talk about the music here you can talk about it a 57 Chevy, a flathead Ford. It's just, you know, whatever, all the valves. So Tony's a guy that just has an insane amount of knowledge of, of different things. And he's always been curious. So, um, it's always been such an insane pleasure to talk to him because it's so stimulating.
0: Well, that's one of the reasons why I think this podcast is such a great format for him because he just will not shut up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no but really i mean he's like he's got the italian gift for gab and he really like i said he's a very charismatic guy and knows a ton of stuff if he's interested in it he knows it very deeply you know whether it's music or whatever
2: you that's know, and funny he- about tony because sometimes we're out on the streets of chicago you know and tony has always talks very intelligently and he's you know you're, you're right he talks real you're like wow this guy really knows what's going on however you get in an italian neighborhood with a couple of Italian girls that are like, hey, what you do? And Tony's like, Hey, how's you going? Yeah, you got you got the big scruffy balls to talk to me like that. And it's like, whoa. It's like it's like, what? Is there a split personality there? So you talk about the Italian gift for Gab, but we get into some little like in Indianapolis, there's a couple of those that we have Italian fest and a couple of old Italian neighborhoods, but they're getting destroyed now. They're getting they're mm-hmm. gone. They're disappearing. But it's a funny. in a couple of occasions, I've seen that, and I'm like, "Wow, you just went into Tony Italian mode real quick."
0: <laughs> he went full. You went full Goomba.
2: Yeah, he did. He is like, "What?" You were just talking to me a second ago, and now.
0: <laughs> well, that is funny because he can he can like uh, range the gamut. You know, like he can go yeah, full Goomba or thug. You know, like he yeah. Sometimes yeah. he can be articulate and very high minded, and other times he'll say things. <laughs> you'll be like, "Whoa, that's
2: yeah." Like hey, are you parking? My, you know, yeah. Like hey, you almost scraped my car. And it's like Tony. So yeah, it's like the Sopranos or something. It's like so, it's funny. I've seen Tony do that. Um, it, it, that happens in Hawaii. You'll have you'll have areas where they speak pretty strong pigeon, and you'll be talking to a, you know, a Yale grad, and he's speaking to this, and then boom, he'll go into pigeon and in like what. So that happened. That happens here sometimes, but I mean, I've seen it happen personally, seen it happen for with from Tony a couple times, a few times.
0: Well, dude, it's been super cool talking to you. I it's been really enlightening. I didn't know anything about honestly you, but it's it's got tons. I, clearly, you've been like it seems like you've trained with everybody and anybody who's got a name. It seems like you got a real passion for going out there and seeking knowledge, and uh, that's awesome. Uh, this was a great
2: talk, man. And I, say, I stayed on good terms with everybody. And I'll tell you what. Everybody out there will say, you know, Jason's never cheated nobody. He's never lied. He's never, you know, so I've stayed in good terms with everybody. And that helps. Just, just, if you're not a jackass, most people in the world are pretty, pretty kind and are generous hearted. I believe in the intrinsic goodness of human beings. I really do. It's only when they get in groups and corporations and governments that they cause problems. <laughs>
0: Hey, so do you have a school? Do you, you have stuff to plug?
2: No, I'm just uh, just an old man out here in Hawaii doing my stuff. So Just
0: enjoying, just enjoying the weather.
2: Join live. People come to train me sometimes, but they all know who I am and just, they come, whatever. You know, I'm pretty, uh, but yeah, I'm just doing my thing out here. I live, I'm blessed beyond belief. I got the best wife in the world, best kids in the world, best place in the world, best, best friends in the world and healthy and happy and doing well.
0: Awesome, man. Well, this was, like I said, a great talk. I think we could, at least I, I could hear you, you talk about all those other people you've trained with for hours, probably. So I think we should definitely do part two if you're willing. Uh, obviously we'll give you a break maybe, but when yeah. Tony's available, uh, we'll schedule okay. a part two down the road. Um, Cause I'd like to hear you two guys uh, relay your stories together. I think that'd be super awesome. I think everybody would love to hear that. Uh, yeah. Again, thanks for, uh, making a great show uh, it was fascinating stuff and um yeah just enjoy the weather out there all right <laughs> and you we'll take be talking soon and... all right bye i'm just gonna pause it here okay okay